0: It's wonderful to be here uh, in Australia and Sydney. It's become my favorite uh, city on the planet. Uh, and it's, it's, really, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, or yesterday, my wife and I Early in the morning, got up yesterday and walked all the way from uh, just about here to uh, Bondi Beach and uh, around to the beach. So we had a, we have a great time and I can sense of this uh, immensely vibrant and wonderful city. Uh, it's great also to return to people that uh, I have known for some time. I see some faces that I recognize here, which is uh, which is uh, wonderful. Um, My uh, presentation today is growing out of our own um, struggle at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture to think about um, the nature of uh, our Christian and in particular also theological engagement in the moment in which we find ourselves on the one hand Uh, in kind of development of theology as a discipline, because we are theologians at a university, major university, and at the same time, at the uh, time in which culture finds itself uh, today. And uh, our sense is that theology today is in a profound and deep uh, crisis. Um, I don't know some of you, how many of you are theologians, but even those of you who aren't, you might recognize the crisis of theology. Uh, theology has lost its audience, uh, it has lost its reputation, and it's, it has lost its reputation in the wider uh, wider um, public, but also in the academy. And then if I substitute instead of theology, and I say Christian faith and the voice of the Christian faith in uh, public affair has lost uh, audience, lost reputation, you might resonate as well with that statement. Just yesterday I was talking to Tim Wright and he mentioned whereas in Australia in the mid-70s you had bishops and other church uh, folk who were regularly uh, writing about public affairs in the major papers, uh, today uh, the voice is much more muted, notwithstanding uh, fantastic uh, efforts and uh, work that is being, uh, being done here. But that's a situation that we find in many places in the Western, uh, Western world. And obviously for us as Christians that presents a particular kind of uh, a challenge. And it's a challenge also that has to do with not just how do we acquire voice to say what we know that we ought to be saying, but also how do we acquire deeper insight in what it is that we have to communicate, how do we start thinking about the Christian faith in a way that it might resonate, or at least it might uh, be, have a defensible contribution to make to the wider uh, debate. And our sense was that instead of thinking about individual initiatives, individual efforts, individual topics and themes, we need to attend to what was at what is at the heart of the Christian faith, what is also what was at the heart of Christian theology, and that is the question of the good life. And so my my, um, uh, two talks today will be about renewal of the Christian voice in the light of the need to place an account of the good life at the heart of our Christian faith and thinking about our Christian faith at the heart of theology. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to sketch why this matters and what that implies for the character of the Christian faith and theology and then in the second uh, session what I'll try to do is kind of suggest what obstacles lie along the ways and how do we need to understand ourselves as public citizens in order to be able to have plausible account or plausible engagement of the type that I'm suggesting. So roughly that's going to be our road uh, that we need to travel. So the first was first the thing is about well, theology and the good, uh, good life and I want to just indicate first uh, the, are we okay in terms of, uh, you can hear me well? Okay. If I move this, I will be perfect. Okay. So, so first, let's take up this question of the, of, of the good life. Um, and I think the question of the good life, and I'll define what I mean by the good life. Obviously, the idea of the good life is um, very, how do you describe it? Nebulous in people's minds. Everybody has their idea of the good life. My favorite example is a uh, recent issue, maybe a year and a half or so, issue of Architectural Digest. Uh, it's an American magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with kind of uh, upscale architectural, uh, you know, kind of uh, window in upscale architectural kind of solutions, right? And the title of one of the issue was The Good Life. And the subtitle was Fabulous Homes from Around the World, right? So that the good life is identified with fabulousness of whatever kind. In this particular case, it's homes, but it could be of any other other stripe, right? Um, And you can have a list of things that people imagine under good life. And obviously, this is going to be one of the central issues, the struggle around what constitutes the good life. But it is, this whole question is a universal human question and it's a universal human question because (coughs) it is an answer to universal human need. Now it's not simply that people who have a luxury of uh, living a relatively untroubled lives pose to themselves the question of the good life. In fact, the question of the good life is so fundamental that people in any situation and any circumstance ask that question. In fact, when some people, and even there was a question last night as well, but when some people suggest to me that you know, this question of the good life, it's kind of a Western luxury, right? You have to have a certain standard of living to have enough time to kind of sit and reflect on what your good life might, might be. I tend to remind them that most of the most compelling accounts of the good life that we have on the planet were formulated in circumstances which all of us would describe as those of absolute dire need. Where people didn't have enough eat, where longevity was roughly average around 40, 40 years, right? where most of the people, uh, kids who were born, did not live through their first uh, first year, and so on. I'm describing Palestine of the first century. I'm describing a period where Buddha uh, was was active. I'm describing period of Confucius. I'm describing period of Plato, and so forth. Right. This is where our greatest formulations of the visions of the good life were come from, and they come precisely from those dire circumstances. It is for the rich. It is also for the very poor indeed, I think maybe in the situation of poverty, we might have insights that otherwise escape us. It is a fundamental human question, I think, because human beings are oriented toward some good. The orientation toward things, states of affairs, practices that we conceived as good is fundamental to who we are we are also reflective beings, and therefore reflection about what that good is toward which we are oriented is fundamental task that each one of us as human beings has. Now some of the most significant, as I mentioned earlier already, some of the most significant formulations of the good life happened in the course of what people have called axial transformations. Uh, You might recall uh, Carl Jaspers has coined the term axial age, and he thought somewhere around 5th century BC, major philosophies, major world religions have emerged, burst upon the world scene. He's not quite right about this, but there are such things as axial transformations, and they, according to at least uh, Charles Taylor, they mark a shift. They mark a shift from an account of good life that um, operates with what one might describe as natural sense of human flourishing, uh, which is concerned with health, wealth, longevity and fertility. Those are kind of the basic fundamental human concerns and pre in pre-axial period, These were our major concerns. By the way, they tend to be our major concerns today as well, all right? But in axial period, you have a major shift that has occurred. And that major shift that has occurred is people realized that concern with simply these natural goods that we have or that we aspire to have is insufficient. That our lives are oriented toward transcendence. And so in various modes uh, the thought emerged that human life is life worth living, human life is a good life, if it is in one way or or another aligned with however understood transcendence. Now this is a really abstract way to formulate it, right? Uh, But you can have a different conception of what this transcendent realm is, but your goal as a human being isn't simply to increase your wealth, be more healthier, uh, fertility and so forth, right? And longevity, your goal as a human being, it transcends these and your goal is to align yourself with the transcendent goal of your existence. Right? And so I think all world religions at the foundation, their foundation, all great philosophies have this idea of the certain conception of the good life that involves, for the most part, not always, for instance Nietzsche doesn't, but for the most part involves this sense of transcendence. And that formulation then ends up being varieties of accounts of the good life. Now that's the situation in which we find ourselves uh, often today. We live in a pluralistic world with major religions claiming increasing number of uh, population. The uh, world is, by the way, becoming more and more religious place. Right? Rather than less, notwithstanding what Australia is, <laughs> notwithstanding what some other parts of the world are, if you look at the majority of the world, or if you look at the world as a whole, you will see that world is becoming increasingly religious in absolute and also in relative terms. And that means simply that varieties of world religions are present on the world uh, scene. And one of the defining features of this, uh, of world religions, is an account that they give of the good life. Now, they all are oriented toward transcendence. But also, they differ in fundamental ways. (laughs) They differ how they conceptualize transcendence. They differ how they think about the relationship between transcendence and our lives. Transcendence can be personal. Transcendence can be impersonal. Transcendence can be understood as demanding. Transcendence can be understood as generous, and so forth, right? And you'll recognize different world religions already in some of these, these formulations. But at the heart of them all is the question of the good life, how it is that we as a human being should live. Of course they've got rituals, they've got practices, they've got uh, modes of uh, dress and so forth, mores, but still nonetheless at the very heart of all world religions is the question of how do I live a life that is considered to be good. By the way I think that all great philosophies, starting with Socrates and on, are also oriented to this very question. Whether that's Aristotle, Spinoza, Locke, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, you name them. They are all oriented toward the question of the good life. So it's a universal question. Continues to be important question. Before I continue, let me try to um, sketch very briefly formal features, three formal features of the good life. And that's gonna help us a bit as we give a Christian account of what the good life is. And these three formal features are life uh, is about life that is led well. This is an aspect of the good life that concerns agency of me as a human being, of us as human beings. Uh, Second formal feature is that life goes well. That's the feature that concerns the circumstances of our lives, whether we are healthy or ill, whether we live in just or unjust political order, whether we live in an environment that is toxic or that is healthy. Those are the circumstances of our lives. They also go into a good life. So what goes into a good life is, do I lead my life well? Do I act responsibly? Do I, in Christian terms, love my neighbor? and love God as a summary of entirety of the demands on me from, uh, from God. And the other one is our circumstances quite, quite right. And then there's a third dimension of the good life and the ter- third dimension of good life has to do with affective dimension of our lives. That is to say do, does life feel good? Does life feel right? Um, in Christian terms. That would be, do I have a sense of contentment with life? Or, probably the most signature uh, affective state for Christian faith is joy. Do I have joy in my life? And uh, the reason I'm mentioning these three, they're gonna be uh, important features of just about all of these accounts of the good life. Some of them emphasize more one, some of them emphasize more more the other. For instance, Stoics, they emphasize life being led well. Circumstances do not matter very much. And there are such people today also that stress the only thing that you really need is to kind of take charge of your own life and act in a certain way. There are other traditions that emphasize very much circumstances. For instance, today Uh, Maybe not so much today, right? But Marxism might be one such account. You've got to change the set of circumstances. When you change the set of circumstances uh, you're going to be able to live your life really well. The good life is going to take to to be possible for you. Many today not think in similar terms not just from Marxist tradition but from other traditions as well. And then finally there's a third uh, kind of group uh, connected uh, say with the Epicureans uh, uh, in the past or connected today with a kind of wide sensibility that really what matters for the good life is that you feel good. It doesn't matter how you what, what is actually going on, but if your feelings are the most important, uh, most important things. And our argument is going to be that the good life consists of all three of these together. And the debate is going to be, well how do we think of these things as going together? To what extent they must belong together? Um, so that's a little bit as a, as a background question. It's a universal human question, and generally is understood to consist of these three significant features. Right? But the question of the good life Uh, is pressing in a particular way for us as members of modernity, it's pressing on us in a very much a new way. In non-modern cultures, the answer to this question was to a large degree given by the circumstances of life in which people found themselves. Um, They perceived the givenness of the cosmic order, the structures of family life, of religion, of economy, you kind of were born in a pattern of life, and that pattern, stable, relatively stable pattern of life, it defined for you, so to speak, from within, from the practices of that life, what the good life is. Obviously, you had opportunity to reflect on this, but roughly your life was kind of set in a particular direction. You had to be a particularly strong, charismatic individual to kind of wear off from what was set for you uh, in the society, in the culture in which you were born. Now that has almost radically changed with the emergence of modernity. Human beings are more or less, and this is a term that I'm borrowing from Charles Taylor, disembedded. They are demoured from the cosmic order. They have become what we call today individuals. And the question of good life then emerges as a question of intentional concern. I have to worry about what my good life is going to be as an individual human being. That stands before me as a choice. Instead of simply taking on and living out answers embedded within the culture, we are pushed to reflexively engage and answer this question always afresh. Uh, some th- some uh, philosophers and sociologists think about us living always on the cusp right? and the winds from different sides are blowing on us. And you can topple over one way or you can topple over the other way and you've got to kind of make decisions about how to walk so that you walk this path that you want to walk. And sometimes we simply Uh, try to push ourselves in such a way that wind is behind our back and we kind of float, right? It's almost like you're sailing what do you call it? Sailors, I've forgotten English terminology for sailing you know when the wind is in the back you open the sail and suddenly you're just coasting with the wind down. But in either of these cases you have to make choices about what the good life should be for you. What's more, I think in modernity We are facing not just the choice between various meaningful ways in which we can think about our lives, but we are also facing the question of the absence of meaning of life. Right, This kind of a meaninglessness of existence, a life that is good simply because I've chosen it to be the good and therefore I'm not quite sure what's happening with me in my life. It doesn't have weight, it doesn't have a a kind of stability. Uh, to it, uh, that too is one important choice. Yesterday, for those of you who have been uh, to the lecture, I've spoken about just this phenomenon of modern nihilism, right? which is uh, kind of sense that the only thing that makes a choice good is my preference for that choice, and if this is the only thing that makes the choice good, then uh, it doesn't have weight. right? I can, it can always be taken away The meaning that I've given it, I can always take away, and there's always this green demon sitting on our shoulders and whispering, this does not make very much sense, kind of unbearable lightness of existence. So the question of the good life today is pressing from us from two ends. On the one hand, we live in pluralistic societies, and many different religions uh, which organize themselves around the good life are bringing that question to fore. At the same time, also the broader culture, um, uh, important currents in the broader culture, are undermining our ability to make uh, that decision and questioning whether there is such a thing as a meaningful life. Now this is a very um, interesting time in which we find ourselves always living on the cusp with various possibilities, always having to decide. Now you would think that some of the most important things we can do in order to educate ourselves as human beings is to educate ourselves how to make right decisions about the good life, right? After all, what can be more important for my existence than the general directions direction of my life? It's not about freedom to make this or that choice. It's the freedom to orient myself and the rightness of orienting the entirety of my existence in a particular direction. This is the question of human existence. And yet, serious engagement with this question in modern culture is virtually absent. And certainly it's ebbing. So it's heightened in importance. But the resources to answering this quest- for answering this question are increasingly disappearing. Our lives seem simply too crowded, too busy, I might say, were it not that after long hours of work we let inter- entertainment and various addictions gobble up a good portion of the remaining time that we have? Maybe too busy with our entertainment and addictions and our work, right? <laughs> But too crowded, I think, probably is the term, uh, to allow us to give sustained attention to this question. Um, and I think, uh, uh, I think it was David Foster Wallace who has said, we don't not, not only that we don't know how to live meaningful lives, it's that we are unable to focus for very long on that question. <laughs> because we are too distracted to give it proper attention. And then when we do focus on that question, the way we make choices about the good life is the way we make choices about any consumer good that we are going to buy. We kind of consult the consumer reports or something that is equivalent of consumer reports for the good life. Is, are there consumer reports of the, for the good life? We shouldn't create those, right? <laughs> That might be a good way to sell those things, right? Uh, consult our gut feeling and then we make a choice, right? And again, then we are plagued with the same question, how substantively important the question, the, the answer that we have given is, uh, given how we have made that choice, right? So one might, so, so the question might be, well, where do you find help? in order to um, discern adequately the direction of your entire existence, help with the question of the good life. And you might think that colleges and universities might be places where guided exploration of the good life would be uh, not just possible, but it would be significant focus. And yet, when you look at the higher education today, this is precisely what is lacking. We do not explore today this question. It used to be central question of university education. At least in the United States, uh, in Europe, I'm sure that uh, Australian universities are similar in, in this regard. This was at the heart of university education. Education about how to think about the good good life. Of course, you were trained to do other things. You were trained in various skills. You were trained in understanding the world. But one of the central missions of university is to help you, give you clarity about the general direction of your life, to make your decision or to, to confirm your decisions about the direction of your life. After all, who is at the heart of the modern universities? Early on Socrates might be, but what was Socrates' question? For Socrates, the most important question of existence was just that question, right? And his dialogical method was a way in order to kind of tease out of us what is embedded, so to say, in our own memory about how our lives should look like. Um, Now today, on the other hand, information, explanations, skills are valued, not truth-seeking search or exploration of meaning and purpose. Central to our universities is instrumental reason and technical skill, and not meaning and purpose. I think that's a big crisis of our university system. I've put it in one of the uh, texts that our students are becoming experts in means, but amateurs in ends, in goals. We know how to get from point A to point B, but we don't know what the point B should be. Let alone what the point B should be when it comes to the goal of our existence and of our entire uh, societies. And so the universities end up being something like servants of our knee-jerk preferences almost. What we feel in our gut, that's what we are giving means to achieve, but nobody has trained us to figure out what is it that we corresponding to our human nature should actually want where our goals should be. So, universities might have been the places where we should explore this, and yet they're not. Now, you might think theological schools would be, and that would be good news really. Unfortunately, my experience with theological schools is that, uh, well, the question of the good life pops up now and then (laughs) Um, on the curriculum but the sustained reflection to it is hardly given. I mean, there are exceptions, uh, of course, but if you look at it in a broad sweep, the way we study biblical texts is we study them as, a histor- as historical documents. We kind of lock them in the past, situating them there from the past, and they end up being pretty much a dead letter for us, from which we have distanced ourselves, rather than being engaged in a live conversation with the writers uh, of those texts as our intellectual and spiritual contemporaries. Um, In other areas, in my own field, systematic theology, we are great at analyzing systems of thought, right? We see, look look at the claims that individual theologians make, we figure out coherence and incoherence, we zero in where they don't quite make sense, we try to improve that, but the question whether and how that relates to the purpose of my existence, of our existence, it's somewhere there in the background, but to connect it, right, what we do as theologians to that is pretty far away. I think that's one of the main causes of the crisis of theology today. Um, Now, you might think then, if theologians or in theology doesn't do it, maybe churches will do that. Indeed, my good friend Tony Kronman, who's written this uh, nice uh, and important book on uh, university and college education called Education's End. Uh, it's a book on which I built quite a bit of my own work. Uh, he himself is, um, well it's difficult to describe him. I think it's fair to say that he's very much an agnostic Jew um, maybe even leaning toward atheism, though that atheism is, is uh, qualified for him, he's, he's a very compli- uh, complex thinker, an extraordinary human being. And so in his book he writes, you know, if you want today to go to places where sustained reflection on the meaning of life is given, you've got to go to churches. And I told him, Tony, when have you been last time to a church? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I appreciate your compliment. I am a committed Christian, right? But, if you look at actually what's going on in the churches, you might not quite be persuaded that he is right. Notwithstanding the fact that, say, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life was and continues to be an immensely popular book. But Christian faith is often employed as a skill to manage life whose course is preset by the demands of success in education and work, by cultural habits formed uh, around leisure and entertainment. In our private lives, we have morning coffee, we exercise a bit and stretch, and if you're pious we have a moment of reading the Bible. Uh, or Oswald Chambers or something like that, and then we go on to do our work and that work is completely determined by goals extraneous to the nature of the Christian faith, or if it's not determined by goals that are extraneous, we don't ask necessarily how the goals of the faith relates to the goals of the work that that we have. In other words, Christian faith gives us energy boosts, Christian faith maybe heals us, Christian faith stabilizes us, but it doesn't set the course of our lives. Very often churches are just uh, magnifying Sunday uh, celebrations of that same approach to spirituality that we practice often in our uh, regular ordinary lives. Now that's nothing about reflection about the good life and the concrete ways to live a good life. That's about divine band-aid, that's about performance-enhancing drug, religion is performance-enhancing drug, that's about religion as opiate, that is all sorts of things, but it isn't reflection on what makes for the good life. Universities are failing us, our theological schools, I think, are failing us, I think our churches are also failing us. I mean, symptom of that is the kind of the idea that God is there in order to kind of satisfy my needs. Right? Um, Christian Smith has this famous image of God as a divine butler. Right? Well, lovely to have a butler. Good night. Who wouldn't want one? Right? And if the butler is divine, with all the omnipotent power, and sympathetic, totally, what does butler do? Uh, he hasn't seen the thing. He hasn't heard the thing and whatever you need, he's there to provide, right? (laughs) Isn't that an amazing thing, right? And that's how roughly God (coughs) functions in our life, at least that's what we think is a desirable God to have. Aligning our lives with transcendent reality? No, no, no. Aligning transcendent reality with our lives, that's what we want, right? So, the question of the good life, fundamental to human existence, question of the good life, particularly significant in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, the question of the good life unanswered by the institutions that otherwise ought to be attending to the character of the good life. And I think that for me is the good reason why we need to orient the entirety of our theology and about thinking of our faith around the question of the good life. I think, and this may be a controversial statement, that the question of the good life is the question around which Christian faith revolves in its entirety. Certainly there are other important questions, other important questions of deep concern for the Christian faith. But the question about good life is the one and single question in which all other questions are contained. Very bold statement. Very bold statement when you think that the first commandment is to love God with all of your heart, right? Love God above all things. Well wait a second, isn't God to be at the center of our lives? It's a bold statement when you know that the Christ who is a paradigm of human existence did not live particularly quote-unquote, good life, right? But the suffering was defining feature of that life. Nonetheless, I think just in the light of the stress of importance of transcendence of God and on suffering in Christ's life, just in such a way we need to place good life at the heart of the Christian faith. By the way, Christians were called, never at the beginning, were not called Christians at all. They were called as the followers of the way which is to say way is the way of existence, way of living, aligned with Christ being the way, the life, and the truth. So for Christian faith, the question of good life is always, of course, question about God. More specifically, it's a question about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Now the inverse is true. The question about God Especially the question for Christians about God who has taken on human life and destiny is always and inescapably the question about the good life. You really cannot ask properly the question about God as if God was some objective reality out there, who you sit and describe. You think deep thoughts and it's somehow your descriptions and the reality of who God is are of no concern to you. You in fact cannot study God in that way. The only way, appropriate way to study God is in self-involving way because God is such a reality that always already involves you in the way in which you think about God. Whatever you think about God has bearing on who you are and how you ought to live. You can't separate the two. Of course we do it all the time, that's why we're theologians, right? We separated very nicely, but of course fail precisely being a good theologians in doing just that. Now in the Christian sacred texts in the Bible, um, the good life is described under a variety of images. Actually what you have in the Bible, it's very interesting, you have a family of good lives. You don't have a single good life described. Well, in a sense, you have a single good life. And that is the good life which Jesus Christ is, <laughs> right? But you have a descriptions of that good life, who Jesus Christ is, under variety of images, under variety of guises. Uh, in, the new, in the Synoptic Gospels, first three Gospels, uh, the good life is described with, under the rubric of the Kingdom of God which has come now, the good news of the Kingdom of God is here, in the death, life, death and resurrection of Christ. In Paul's epistles, it is described under the, with, with the image of the new creation, new creation which is in Christ through the power of the Spirit. In the fourth gospel, it is described and expressed in the image of new birth by the Spirit into a life abundant. In the Re- book of Revelation, It's described with the image of the New Jerusalem, which comes to us from God, which is, by the way, the city and the Holy of Holies in one. Kind of this unity of the divine and mundane is present in the very shape of the New Jerusalem. Really fascinating, another lecture to give about the shape of the New Jerusalem in the light of the relationship between mundane, ordinary, and transcendent. The whole city comes, right? This is the ordinary, so to speak, of the city that's suffused with the divine presence. That's the future imagined in the book of Revelation. That's the good life imagined in the book of Revelation. Now these images, of course, take up the themes from the, what Christians call the Old Testament. Whether that's the Garden of Eden, whether that's a promised land, whether that's Kingdom of David, or the great hopes of the prophets of Isaiah of Ezekiel and so on. And so you have this large family, so to speak, of good lives, all fruit of this one life, which is Jesus Christ. Now you have also, in the biblical uh, traditions, you have presence of these three formal features that I mentioned. Remember those features still? (laughs) Life being led well, life be going well and life feeling good. In Jesus' ministry, life being led well is summed up in the dual command, love God and love neighbor, and many other instructions about ethical behavior and even emotional uh, orientation of the self that Jesus Christ uh, gives. Life going well is expressed in Jesus' healings, his feedings, uh, his calming of of the storm, those are all circumstantial kinds of things that need to be in place for the life to go well. And then you've got also this affective side of human uh, life emphasized and that's uh, primarily in the, in the Gospels uh, and in the Epistles comes under the rubric of joy. I mentioned that earlier. Joy is such fascinating. thing. I was talking to, uh, to John just before we, we started because we got a, at the center a grant, Templeton grant, to study joy. And then, of course, I persuaded Templeton Foundation that you can't study joy as an independent emotion, because joy is connected with the entirety of human life. But if you look at the Gospel of Luke, for instance, it starts with joy. Angel greets Mary and says, rejoice. The Gospel hasn't gotten going yet. Jesus Christ isn't yet even there. And the word joy comes because he is the one who comes. Throughout the Gospel, occasionally, you have this word, joy, repeated most notably in the famous chapter 15 of the Luke's Gospel, where when uh, those who have been found, or things that have been lost but found, uh, when they're found, great joy uh, is there in heaven, great joy is there on earth. And then the final words of the Gospel of Luke, one verse before the last. Disciples see Jesus disappear, and they go rejoicing to Jerusalem, right? So joy frames the entirety of the life there. In some ways, you can also say that these three features of the good life are present, for instance, in uh, when Apostle Paul says and describes what does the Kingdom of God consist of. Remember the Romans 14, 17, okay, I have put the Bible here on the side, right, but occasionally I, I go back to that. <laughs> <coughs> if you look at uh, Romans uh, fourteen seventeen, 17, uh, Alan, you're concerned there, am I doing okay? Good. <laughs> Except that I'm breathing into this thing. Um, so in uh, Romans 14, uh, 17, kingdom of God is not in food or drink but in righteousness, peace and joy. Now what's righteousness? It's righteous living. That's the agential side. That's living, leading one's life well. What is peace? It's the Hebrew shalom, which describes the entirety of circumstances in which we live. Which is life going well. And what is joy? it's a feeling dimension, right? We rejoice, we, we have a certain feelings, positive feelings, about what is happening in our lives. So you have in the summary of what the Kingdom of God is about, stress on these three features of the good life. And of course, the interesting thing about it is that each one of those can serve as a summary of the entire life of faith. So for instance, when you think about future kingdom of God, uh, world to come. Well, we can say the world to come is a world of love. And we have described the entirety of what it is. Or when you say the world to come is the world of peace, which is another way in which we describe the world to come. Again, you would describe the entirety of it under the rubric of peace. Or you can say, as Jesus does in the story, in the parable of the faithful servant, to the faithful servant, the master says, enter into joy of your master. The entirety of the God's kingdom is described under the rubric of joy. Altogether, all three are necessary, but each is the window onto the whole. Now, I know that my friend is here very much, Tony is very much interested in Trinitarian uh, relationships, right? Here you've got most interesting of the trinitarian relationships with regard to our lives. The three are one and yet each one of them had its own independent uh, importance. This is then the good life that we are to aspire. Now let me say a few words about when you place the good life at the center of the Christian faith, what kinds of things have you said no to? Right? Because that's a very important uh, question. You know what you mean with yes when you can specify what the no is that's implied in that yes. Yeah, to place the good life at the center of the Christian faith means certainly to push some other things out of the center. So, if the Christian faith is a way of life, if it's about the good life, then Christian faith is not primarily about explaining reality. Christian faith is not about theory of the world. If it were, from our today's perspective of developed sciences and so forth, it would be an obsolete explanation, superfluous, irrational, and in many regards also a harmful one. True Christian faith contains cosmic narratives and interpretations of reality that claim to be true, that we as Christians believe that are true. But the truthfulness of these narratives and interpretations is such that it always relates to our ways of living. In other words, they're not self-standing explanations, as the scientific theories might be, but they're always already implicated in the way in which we live. Right? This is simply illustrates and spells in different way what I have just said a few minutes ago about the way in which we study God. way we should we study uh, our knowledge about God is not objective, simply objective description about God. Our knowledge about God is a description already of how we are involved as human beings called to live. Therefore, theology isn't about explaining. Theology isn't simply about describing, but it's always already about shaping the way in which we live. Now, the other thing is what Christian faith might not is not it's not about manipulating reality. Let me step back. These two things are the ways in which some anthropologists describe religion religions are magic primitive uh, 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 myth primitive science and religion is magic primitive technology right so that's basically how many of the critics of religion see religions functioning indeed how many think that christianity is functioning like a primitive science and primitive uh, technology, and once you have a advanced science, and once you have advanced technology, why would you need a, a Viking ship to sail something if you can use supersonic jet, right? Those explanations don't quite uh, function, and those um, technologies don't quite work. Right? Um, certainly, Christian faith promises transformation. And it's an important feature of the Christian faith to promise transformation of our lives, expectations of daily bread, expectations of things being right, made right and made new, expectation that the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven, the transformation is going to happen. That is all part of the Christian faith. But that's all tied with the reality and experience of the good life. So rather than being primarily about explaining and manipulating reality, the Christian faith embodies, celebrates and spells out a vision of the good life centered on the self-revelation of Jesus Christ. More precisely, it embodies, celebrates and spells out a large family of good lives, all children of that one truly good life, which was Christ's. Now, my time is uh, up for this first uh, lecture and I've been going on. Uh, one more thing I wanted to just uh, elaborate, uh, I'll do that very briefly, uh, is to suggest this means also what I've just said. Am I okay? Yeah. This means also that the, pri- the, the New Testament or, or the Bible has three stories, interrelated stories. Uh, as part of one large story. One is the story of creation. The other one is story of consummation. One is, the pinnacle of one is uh, life in the paradise, story of creation. The pinnacle of other is the new Jerusalem, perfection of that uh, creation. But then there's a redemption story. A paradigmatic event of redemption story is exodus of the children of Israel from slavery or death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the description that I have given of theology centered around the good life, the primary stories are creation and consummation. Secondary story is the story of redemption. Now that may be controversial for some people. Are you saying that the death of Christ is of secondary importance? That's what some of you might immediately say. And, uh, well, shall I bite the bullet boldly? And say, yes, (laughs) because death of Christ is a contingent upon sin coming into the world. Were it not for sin to have come into the world, death of Christ would not be necessary. Therefore, the redemption story is a story that is in support of the consummation story In a sense, it either returns us back, in fact, it does more. It is the way in which we can be reoriented toward the telos of the new creation. And that's why Jesus Christ also is very much different than John the Baptist. Jesus Christ doesn't come proclaiming repentance simply. Repent because judgment of God is coming. Jesus Christ comes proclaiming the good news. Right? The good news of what is positive, what God is creating, is at the foundation of the Christian faith. And uh, I think if we are to think uh, about the good life, we need to articulate that good life in the context of the stories of creation and in the context of the story of um, consummation with um, redemption functioning as a subsidiary theme. I think I will end here. I could elaborate more about uh, the importance of the positive, rather redemption, which is kind of removal of the negative, playing the predominant role, but maybe we can leave that for discussion.